welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. I love that we have people listening from all over the world to A Better World, and that's what helps to make it a better world that all of you are tuning in from everywhere. We have a, a new group of people, not only from South Africa, but even from Senegal, I see. How much fun. And, of course, from the U.K. and Australia and the United States and Canada, and uh, on it goes, Europe, etc. We still have yet to get into Latin America, but it is on its way. And Asia. We have some in Asia, too. However... I want to just say thank you all for tuning in and joining in today. We are going to be spending the hour with a favorite, favorite guest of mine and colleague, Hazel Henderson, who we have had on the show several times before on a couple of roundtables, talking about green matters, about the green economy, about renewable energy, and about building an economy that is based on sustainability. You know, it's all common sense. It just seems more common to us than to those that run fossil fuel companies. I don't know why, but it happens to be the case. But we're going to be speaking about that today, about building a renewable energy-based economy and about simple, clean living, sustainable living, about zero waste, about how to use materials, recycling and upcycling, as well as even how to review the world of possible investments. Those companies, some of them are B corporations, some are regular C corporations, some of them are nonprofit corporations that are doing tremendous, making tremendous efforts to turn the world around, make it much more eco-friendly, biomimicry-based, um, systemic, sensitive. And by doing these things, by taking these acts, we are democratizing the world economy and we're getting everybody onto a more similar page. Of course, there is the distinction between um, classes, economic classes, but we're going to also redefine wealth overall, which is one of Hazel's and my favorite subjects of understanding the different types of wealth that we all have, actually, that reducing it all to a common denominator of money is really missing the meaning of wealth and what it really is. So these are some of the topics of today. Hazel is the founder and CEO of Ethical Markets, and she has been uh, on this path for literally decades as a, a world-leading citizen and economist in making the world a better place and in apprising everyone from heads of state to accountants on the ground, how to change the perception of value and how to shift the consciousness to a place where we have a much freer, healthier, happier, and more economically just world. So, Hazel Henderson, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure, as always, to have you. Thank you, Mitchell. I'm going to enjoy this. 
Okay, good. <laughs> so I've set you up here, and uh, so I'd love for you to follow through. And uh, first of all, let's start with this idea of wealth. You know, I have so many times said to people, Hazel, that uh, I said, I am so wealthy, and someday I'll even have some money. <laughs> exactly. And it, it, right? it's all about um, understanding how the world actually works. And, you know, when you realize that uh, this planet gets all of its energy from those free photons from the sun, and we don't have to dig in the earth anymore, and that we humans now are going through our next evolutionary stage, which is from fossil fuels and the early industrial revolution to what I call the solar age. And uh, I wrote a book called The Politics of the Solar Age back in 1981 after spending six years as a policy, science policy wonk in Washington and mm. realizing that all of these fossil fuel, what I call the fossilized sector, because it includes agriculture and pharmaceuticals and uh, all based on fossil fuels, Yes, And that basically they had captured the legislatures at the state level as well as uh, in Washington, D.C. And they had written the tax code to benefit themselves. And uh, basically they garnered all of these subsidies, you know, um, and uh, it was going to be, I could see, it was going to be very, very hard uh, for this new solar age economy to break through. And I can remember I was already getting business plans uh, from uh, companies who were doing solar panels and uh, wind generators and energy efficiency and all kinds of stuff. And they there was no place for them in the venture capital world there was no place for them in uh, people's you know in portfolios it was all too new and the fossil fuel uh sectors pretty much owned the game and they so here we are 30 years later conversation. and uh, yeah we we're, we're still um, we're still now, I think, at the tail end of the politics of the solar age. I think we're having the last gasp now of yes. the fossilized sectors. They're still uh, circling the wagons. And, you know, whether it's OPEC or whether it's the oil companies or whether it's the uh, donors, you know, uh, in this country who uh, are deep into fossil fuels and have their favorite, favorite climate deniers in the Congress, or whether it's the Russians, you know, their whole economy is just based on oil and gas. Uh, uh, but you can see that we're reaching the end of the line because what's happening is that the green economy has grown up through the cracks anyway. And where we are now, um, you know, when we're dealing with all of the pollution and uh, the social costs of that fossil fueled economy of the past, you know, we now uh, are, are in, uh, we're realizing that uh, we have all the technology we need and all we have to do is to scale up 
these companies, you know, the solar companies, the wind generator companies, the new batteries, uh, all of this uh, stuff, you know, electric cars. And, uh, and so as in this country, we have an administration right now that kind of faltered and pulled away from this evolutionary future. The private sector just jumped right in. And so, you know, that uh, the, the last uh, COP23 meeting, which took place in Bonn, Germany, um, uh, and, and in Paris in 2015, um, it was investors who were there. It was business people who were there. And um, they were just saying, look, you know, it doesn't matter um, about the climate deniers. Um, we are just going ahead, and they're scaling up to the point where the costs are coming down, and now we know that solar panels and wind power are actually competitive cost-wise with nuclear and coal and oil, and so there's no stopping it now. Yes. Well, you made a point to me some time ago, Hazel, that the investment in the green renewable world is in excess of $7.4 trillion, and the Trumps can come and go, the Pruitts can come and go, and nary a care. We don't like it. That's for sure. They are an obstacle, but more than anything, they're not a boulder. They're a pebble. And nothing is going to stop the forward momentum that we see in this country, the United States, as well as across the world. I'm involved in initiatives, for instance, in Africa, where there is a micro-hydro technology company that I'm connected with that are doing gangbusters in countries like Ghana, soon Uganda, and others to make a difference in bringing electricity to villages straight across Africa. And this is very exciting. The same thing is yeah. happening in India. The same and thing is happening in China. In, in and Latin it's America, all yeah. based on I, Absolutely. And the, the, the big operative word is leapfrog. They all yeah. realize that they don't have to make all the mistakes that we do, did and go through all of the stages of the fossilized industrial revolution that we did. They can just leapfrog right to the solar age. And yes. you see that happening, say, for example, in Kenya, where uh, suddenly, you know, they, they bypassed the whole um, banking system and decided to operate yeah, the their M-Pesa. economy on cell phones with the M-Pesa yeah. system. And then they started to do the same thing with solar panels. And that's how you pay for your solar panels. Um, all over Kenya now, you, you pay for it um, on your cell phone. And, of course, this is spreading now um, all over uh, Africa. But the thing that happened when we had this denial kind of administration came in, it just galvanized everybody. And yeah. everybody in the sector that I work in, you know, which is what we do at Ethical Markets, you know, our our whole um, mission is to accelerate the, the global transition to the solar age. And yes. so what we saw happening immediately, like our green transition scoreboard, where we check, uh, we track all of these private investments, no government, just private investments in all these green sectors. The new number, Mitchell, is 8.1 trillion. <laughs> 
Oh, one behind growing. the <laughs> and, That's and really so, good news, uh, And, of course, you know, the, the current one we put out is called Deepening Green Finance, and people can download it from our website if, if they want free. And mm-hmm. uh, I just go over um, how this is now um, getting finally to where we need to go, which is changing the financial system. And all the old financial models that uh, were based on the old cash first, money first, finance first models that, that they use on Wall Street. And all of my accountant friends um, you know, are now talking about, no, no, there's six forms of capital and finance is only one. And there's there's built capital, which is the factories and facilities, and then there's intellectual capital, which is the largest chunk of most of the uh, advanced societies, and then the social capital, which is how we organize ourselves, and then there's human capital, and of course, natural capital. And so the new accountants um, are basically saying that the way they judge a company is the extent to which they have either enhanced or degraded all six forms of capital. Now, that's a huge revolution. I mean, that's a paradigm shift. Enormous. Talk about leapfrogging. You know, this is a quantum jump that even a frog can't do. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's really into the new mindset, another subject you and I so appreciate talking about, which is this new consciousness, this quantum mind, if you will. It's, it's holistic, and as our dear friend and colleague Fritoff Kopra would call it, it's systems thinking. It's yes. a Lord and Dr. Laszlo, needless to say, who is more yes. the founder of that thinking. It's understanding systems theory that everything is connected, and we can refer not to our own subjective experience, which might tell us and show us that, and indigenous wisdom also, by the way, but actual physics shows us what we call the butterfly effect in quantum physics. Everything is connected and everything is interdependent on each other. And both and when those you two wonderful that, guys are good friends of mine and have been for right. years. You know, and uh, basically that, the, we see it now in this new way of measuring corporations, this very holistic, systemic way of measuring corporations by these six forms of capital. And we also see it at the national country level where we're beginning to, to dump the whole GDP model, which is all just based like on cash flow. Anything that can be measured in financial terms is the only thing that counts. And we've gone now to 195 countries signed up for what the United Nations calls the Sustainable Development Goals. And those 17 goals are totally interlocking, holistic, and systems-oriented. So we have it now. We have the new roadmap uh, going at both the country level and the company level. So this is a, a, a huge change that I thought I'd never see in my lifetime. Indeed. It's a huge thing. In fact, I'd like to bring up another idea that is piggybacking on this shifting consciousness of understanding the variety and the volume of wealth And that money, what we call money in a bank, is one 
digitized, as you say, informational accounting system of the wealth that we have. It's only one marker. And with this, even the poor, the so-called, I make the distinction all the time of saying materially poor because they can be spiritually rich. And I have found this, Hazel, in my travels around the world time and time again, that people who are spiritually rich have often actually been materially poor better put the other way around the people that i have met in places like india in places like the philippines in places like china um in the old yugoslavia people who have very little externally greece are so quick to bond and form friendships and give you what they have whether it's a cup of coffee or it's a small fish for dinner and i've been in those contacts it's so impressive but where we find enormous material wealth all of a sudden people get a little stingy not everybody there are huge examples of great generosity also thank goodness but uh, you know what i'm talking about it it helps people digest the distinction between different kinds of capital and different kinds of wealth now well i was i would say mitchell yeah. that the problem is that uh, the industrial revolution about 300 years old began in my mother country britain and uh, and of course it then expanded enormously in my beloved adopted country the us uh, and basically the whole idea was that we created this economics um, body of um, of principles that they're not science you know economics is not a science at all it's like the law you know it's advocating a certain set of uh, you might say ideologies and so we're seeing that very clearly now you know with this whole um, uh, idea where the entire society has been sort of trained to think that money is the only form of wealth yes and everything is judged in that way and we've we've really come to a tipping point on that and people are now beginning to realize well is money the only form of wealth and a few years ago you could never have such a conversation and now you can you know and it all began when people began to realize um, in many industrial countries no we we don't want to go on this malfunctioning source code called GDP you know um, and kind of constant GDP growth that doesn't care about all the social costs or the environmental costs you know they just pass them on to taxpayers or whatever Uh, people uh, were sort of waking up quite a long time ago I've been writing about this uh, uh, 20 years that uh, you know wherever I went in the world I would judge, I would use as an indicator of how badly managed a country was in terms of this old GDP model that became a complete fetish. Everybody, 
used it, you know. <laughs> and uh, and that was to see how many like local currencies point. were arising. And and everywhere I went in the world, there would be hundreds of these local currencies. And what they generally did was taught people about money. Oh, I see. And made made it possible for people to now understand, as they do quite clearly, um, they, they see now, oh, these central banks, um, they print money. And, and the whole thing is they bail out these big banks and they give the money to their friends. What's going on here? And, you know, what, what we found in this country after the big bailouts of 2008, you had the rise of the Tea Party, and you had the rise of Occupy Wall Street. And I used to say over and over again, look, I see the same banners and the same placards in both. And, and they say, where's my bailout? People yes. got it. And so now that whole cat is out of the bag. And now um, where you have this sort of worry that, um, get comp- that countries – Central banks are just printing money, you know, and oh my God, you know, building, building up all of this debt and what, what's going to happen to our children and all of that conversation. And so that um, led to not only the rise of local currencies, but the rise of cryptocurrencies. And they, you know, like this, this enormous bubble, um, which is going to burst for sure, uh, on Bitcoin. Which, you know, when it began, I have to say, um, I did a TV show with a friend of mine, uh, Chris Lindstrom, who was one of the people who helped develop the um, the Berkshires, the local currency in the, mm-hmm. uh, that area of Massachusetts. And he was saying, this was we, we were doing television here back about 2010, I think it was. And, and he was saying, well, look, what, what do you think about Bitcoin? And I said, I think it's an adolescent hackers wet dream (laughs) 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 and in a sense you see it it really is but speaking about the blockchain aspect of it which the blockchain aspect of it which a lot of people don't understand and I barely do but what I do understand about it is it brings awareness and witness to transactions so they are basically transparent, which is in polar opposition to our banking industry's activity yes, and, and mode and of operation. Exactly. And so we, we don't have to, to focus on Bitcoin, um, but you can. Uh, these blockchain um, distributed ledger technologies, which have now spawned several hundred startups in all kinds of different areas, like one yes. that we work with is a, a group called Everledger in London. And um, what uh, the, the CEO, um, she and I had a long talk on the phone, and um, what she does with her blockchain is to guarantee the provenance of diamonds in people's estates that are being valued for, um, you know, collateral purposes or for, you know, all kinds of inheritance purposes and stuff like that. 
And so I remember talking to her and saying, well, we'd really like to make a partnership with you because we have a project actually to um, phase out global gem mining of diamonds and you know other stones because it's now unnecessary and polluting and you know they uh, have these cartel prices which are com- completely mm-hmm. fantasy prices because they don't it's pay another master slave relationship is yes what it is. oh absolutely and so we decided the best thing to do was to set, to set up a certification program and kind of a good housekeeping seal for all these hundreds and hundreds of little companies now all over the world that are growing uh, diamonds and all kinds of other stones in the laboratory. And they are indistinguishable from diamonds mined from the earth, um, where nobody's getting killed. Uh, there's there's no uh, conflict, no blood diamonds, no uh, environmental damage, and very good for local economies and small businesses. So. We, our certification basically says uh, that we certify uh, only gems not mined from Mother Earth. And mm-hmm. it's absolutely extraordinary that industry over, all over the world is growing to the point now. It's really disrupting De Beers and all of these big um, mining companies um, are losing. Um, their, their, their stock is going Market down. Share. The prices are going down. And, you know, uh, basically that's about value. And so I said to this woman, you know, who has this company, Everledger, look, um, you don't want to be just um, on the yes, provenance with your blockchain of um, uh, the diamonds in in people's you know vaults and old you know uh, legacies and stuff like that. Um, you yeah. also want to be guaranteeing the provenance of the best of these manufactured diamonds because obviously there are different grades. That's and much the very more best interesting ones. a conversation, quite honestly. So she said, <laughs> the other she said one right away, business oh as God, usual. She said, yes. Of course, yeah. and so we exchanged our logos, and um, and so she realized that the the new thing is going to be these much less expensive, and environmentally sound, um, you know, um, manufactured gems. Why right. not? Sure. So the point is that the green mindset, the eco-friendly, eco-sensitive mindset, is pervading the entire world. I'd like to pick up on something, which is this, Hazel, that we haven't addressed directly, but it's part of the GDP myth in some form, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this idea of an ever-growing economy. And Fritjof Capra, in his course that I recently took, uh, thanks to you and your invitation mm-hmm. on systems thinking and a systems view of the world and life, actually, uh, talks about this. How can you have an ever-growing, infinitely growing economy on a finite planet? You know, hello, well, anyone can do that arithmetic. But the question yes, I, I mean, want to ask, the, thing is, the question I, I want to paper let together. Me, I'd like to ask and this first. 
Well, let me ask this because I want to frame this in a particular mm-hmm. way. There is an idea of a sustainable economy. There's a, an idea of a zero growth economy. There's an idea of a homeostatic economy. This is very interesting. It means that the economy may one year may grow a little bit and another year it will shrink a little bit. And if you want to think about biomimicry and an economy being reflected Uh, by biological systems. That's the kind of expansion and contraction we see in all of nature, in fact, in all of the universe. But yet we live under the guise of if it's not expanding, it's crashing. Could you talk exactly? About that? And, and you know, this is very sloppy, you know, early industrial thinking, and, yeah. and it, it's it's all of those um, rather those you know, erroneous economic textbooks that we're still wedded to, and that yeah. still drive our policy. And so the thing is that Fritjof Kapper and I wrote a paper together, which we published um, in Britain with an accounting um, journal uh, called Qualitative Growth. And you see, what I have always maintained is that, uh, first of all, you have to, in any society, any living system, and an economy is a living system embedded in a living society, is you have to always look at what is growing, what is dying, and what has to be maintained. And so it's perfectly okay um, to see the um, the solar age part of the economy growing. We want it to grow. We want to grow solar uh, panels. We want to grow wind generators. We want to grow circular economy, upscaling companies, and all of those things. And we want the fossil fuel industries to quietly sink into history. And that's what Hillary Clinton was trying to say when she made the big boo-boo you know, in West Virginia, saying, well, you know, um, we're going to shut these coal mines down. <laughs> and what yeah. she was really, what she really meant was, hey, already um, so the solar age economy, you know, uh, is creating 10 times as many jobs right now today as there yeah. are in all of the coal industry. And it didn't kind of come out right because um, I think, unfortunately, the political debates um, don't engage people in the higher consciousness level. And they're uh, they're down there in the weeds, you know, talking about tax policy or, you know, um, or um, all kinds of kind of micro things. And they don't put it together and say to the electorate, uh, well, what's happening uh, is that we humans are, are transiting, we're transitioning from an economy that is now unsustainable based on digging in the earth for all of our energy and, and, and minerals. Polluting to an, yeah, and polluting and all of the rest of it to an economy based on the free photons we get every day from the sun. Yeah. And you see, that is the way that you could get the electorate um, to raise its sights a little bit and say, oh, oh, I see, it's a really, really big change we're talking about here. But we can navigate it with people um, who are changing the scorecard and uh, changing the metrics, changing the paradigm, changing the technologies. We have everything we need. All we need to do is to scale up the new technologies 
please, and use the new scorecards, which will guide us, instead of over a cliff, which is where we were going, will guide us to a more abundant and sustainable kind of more equitable future. And somehow or other, I don't know why it is, Mitchell, but um, economists, I mean, uh, politicians, at least in this country, don't seem to be able to articulate this stuff. Why is that, I wonder? It's so odd. It's so odd. Let's take a moment and just let everyone know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the United States, of course, that is, and the Big Apple. And we are on every Monday evening on television in New York City at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time as well, or EDT, depending on the time of the year. And you can either tune in on television if you happen to live in Manhattan or be visiting, or you can tune in through our website at www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv. If you do not yet receive our free newsletter, please sign up for it. It's on the right-hand side of the website, and we would love to have you participate in our A Better World community because it's thinking like this that we speak about on the air every single week that is helping to build this groundswell of people, men and women of all sizes, shapes, and colors to create a better world. Today we are spending the entire time with the economist, evolutionary economist, and futurist Hazel Henderson, who is the founder of Ethical Markets, and she is doing a winning job in creating a win-win economy and a solar economy, one that is based on common sense, where everyone wins. It's not a top-down, but rather a bottom-up form of thinking. And uh, Hazel, again, it's a pleasure to have you on A Better World, talking about these kinds of things that are really central to where we are today as a species because our species is actually in danger of losing our selves. And out of the ashes, out from the phoenix, we are beginning to see rising a new human, if you will, which is giving rise to a new sustainable economy. And I, I so appreciate all that you are sharing with our audience. So in short, there really is a sustainable economy that we can establish. Isn't that correct? Yes. And, and the, the contours of it are clearly visible. And you have to look across the whole a society to see all of these green shoots everywhere, whether it's sustainable agriculture and contract uh, kind of agriculture and farmers markets rather than industrial food, you know, and um, and, and all of that kind of thing, or, uh, you know, in almost every area. And what we focus on at Ethical Markets, and we're a media company, you know, we have uh, television programs, um, which people... People, uh, people can watch um, on our website for free. We we, um, we rent them to finance professors, and they go to business schools all over the world, and that's one of the sources of our income. 
Mm-hmm. But basically, uh, you know, we we are at the stage now where we can see um, in in every area uh, that the, this change, and so we have focused on finance and re-educating asset managers and um, financiers because everything they I have to say, this is, I hate to say this, Mitchell, but. Most of those expensive educations that you get, like at the Harvard Business School, are taught all the wrong things. They taught a very, very narrow view of finance, which pushed us over the cliff almost. And right now, now, can you be clear about what and explicit about what that actually means, Hazel? Well, uh, if you have um, the whole society running on the old economics, the GDP uh, kind of economics where nothing counted except money and all of the costs that come along with the kind of production processes um, were, quote, externalized. That's what's said in the textbooks. You could just forget it, you know, let pass it on yeah. to the taxpayers, hide it in the environment, whatever. And so that model was picked up in finance. And so all the financial models are um, uh, that people use uh, to manage portfolios on Wall Street are all the same model. And the only thing that counts is finance. And and so, you know, we thought, well, uh, yeah, we thought, well, the the thing is that we have to engage finance because finance is sort of the tip of the spear. And it's like the flywheel of social and environmental destruction all over the planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so uh, we decided that our mission should be really to engage uh, these Wall Streeters. And I got very involved uh, 20 years ago with socially responsible investing because we wanted to show that there was another way to do a successful portfolio, um, you know, without weapons and without um, polluting companies and unfair to workers and all of that stuff. And when we started, I was an advisor to the Calvert Group, and we started in 1982, some were even earlier, Pax World Fund was in the 1970s. And Mm -hmm. uh, basically all the Wall Streeters, you know, the Forbes and Barron's and all of Wall Street Journal said, oh, these people are going to lose their shirts. They don't understand. You know, you can't make money unless you cut all these corners and Mm. unless you create all these Destroy the trees and the forests. Yes, my gosh, how could you make money? And, (laughs) of course, uh, what happened was that we ended up now where just a few weeks ago, The Economist magazine um, has a whole uh, article uh, saying that this kind of socially responsible ethical investing is the is the new the the, the, you know the biggest new trend that's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, my gosh, I was just looking at my inbox. You know, I manage um, all of the content that comes in from all over the place. Mm-hmm. And if anyone wants to sign up to to our daily uh, feed, which uh, where I uh, you know put all of the stuff out there, they can come to our website, which is ethicalmarkets.com. And mm-hmm. you know, basically, uh, the thing I saw this morning that came across my computer was that the FTSE uh, 100 in London 
uh, now would you believe it has a, a climate uh, a climate uh, ETF uh, an index um, that, that uh, you can have fossil fuel free portfolios that are all into recycling and upcycling and all of this um, on the London Stock Exchange. You know, Wild. so this is this is where we're Wild. going now. It's happening, Hazel. Yeah, it's, it's happening. happening. You yes. know, you and I were on this. 20, 30, literally years ago, because yes. we saw what we were doing to our precious Mother Earth and how it needs to get reflected in our business activity. Now, uh, on behalf of Ethical Markets and a Better World, I have attended a couple of these green investment conferences in the last several months. And one of the points that is made over and over again is that the green investment world is outpacing the uh, the um, sta- what is it uh, the uh, New York Stock Exchange Standard and Poor's. It's um, it's gone beyond. Oh, yeah. Performing exactly. I mean, we're outperforming um, all of these uh, the the regular all of indexes. The standard indexes. Yeah. And it's just yes. hilarious. If that's not the biggest kick in the you know what, you know, we have so doing good yeah. means doing well, which of course yes. has been a motto of a better world, and I'm sure ethical markets for a long time. And oh, it, yeah. it sort of follows the spiritual principle that if you do what your heart bid you to do, then all will work out. If it's working out on the spiritual level, it will also work out on the material. It just is a form of larger understanding of physics is the way I like to put it. You know, we call it sometimes metaphysics, but it's physics nonetheless. Yes, absolutely. Isn't that and, true? you know, where we are right now, as, as all of our societies are also going digital, um, and uh, this is something I'm, we're focused on a lot right now, is yes. that it turned out, you know, that Silicon Valley unfortunately picked up all the bad habits of Wall Street and mm-hmm. all of the greed model, the greed is good models of Wall Street. And yes. so... Their business models, you know, um, of all these social media companies, you know, uh, Facebook and Google and Twitter and so on, um, Mm -hmm. basically we are the product. I mean, the the business model that they have uh, was basically, okay, you know, we'll create algorithms. We won't need to hire many people. And uh, we will just, um, uh, we we will get people hooked on their cell phones and on their computers with all of this clickbait, you know, cats and uh, funny pictures and all kinds of weird stuff. And then we'll keep them addicted uh, so that um, we can keep capturing their information. And so we we go on these sites. I don't use any of those sites. But people go and sign up, you know, and they upload all of their pictures and all of this stuff onto these sites. And that is... Uh, immediately that is taken by the algorithms that run these companies and um, it is massaged and then sold to advertisers and insurance companies and Lord knows what. And uh, so basically um, we think we're getting it for free, but uh, basically we're the product. 
So we have to change this business model uh, very quickly because, you know, um, there were hearings on Capitol Hill um, a a few months ago about how um, uh, they had all of the the, um, uh, lawyers for these companies and they were saying, how come you let the Russians um, use your site, you know, and, and, and have all of these fake accounts? and all of these bots. In regard to the election. In regard to the election election. and all of this fake news that you were propagating through Twitter and how could that happen? And you know what? These guys that were testifying are saying, well, you know, I mean, we we really, we just really don't know. I mean, you know, these these things... um, You mean they don't understand the algorithms? No, they don't understand their own algorithms. You know, uh, and after all, an algorithm is programmed by human beings, and so human beings have biases. Um, They they can be stupid. And uh, so I I have been um, um, doing reviews of a whole spate of books now um, of people who are dropping out from these companies on Silicon Silicon Valley and saying, my God, you know, um, this is terrible, uh, you know, because um, they, they, it, it's this technology they know uh, and through their, their whole purpose is to make these, um, these platforms um, addictive. Yes. And the whole thing is how That's do right. we addict people? And sure. the amazing thing is that um, one of these books um, called Weapons of Math Destruction, which mm. is written by a, a woman mathematician who went to work for one of these companies and so saw it from the inside. And, you know, basically uh, she reports that the uh, companies, the CEOs of these companies, um, and she she mentioned Steve Jobs, of course he's now uh, passed away, but they none of them would allow their children to have smartphones. They made their children read books because they said that um, books wire your brain differently. Books are, um, are really um, much more um, focusing on the forebrain where we have yes. our rational thought. And Instead these, of the reptilian. Um, Instead of the reptilian brain, which is what people go to on the screens, um, if you're given a lot of um, jazzy eye, ca- eye candy or, yeah. you know, pretty cats or whatever it is, goes right into the amygdala. And they yeah. know this. Yes. And that's how they hook people. Well, 60 Minutes, Hazel did an entire segment on this sort of literal brainwashing, or I should say, uh, addictive rewiring using imagery and even some other more kind of uh, detestable types of quiet programming technologies to, in fact, addict. So, you know, one type of cell phone will be more popular than the other. And I think that we need to kind of take a step Back, and I'd like to speak with you about this, about the entire aspect of human beings, both from a personal psychological point of view as well as then from a sociological and cultural one, that has this tendency toward 
greed and acquisition because at base, I think that this is the problem. And we can make legislative changes which and policy changes, which we seek to do, and we seek to cover up and close the gaps and the loopholes. But someone who is possessed or obsessed with greed will find the loophole. They will find the um, the door that can open even a crack to see their way through. So ultimately, I don't see politics as the answer. I don't even see um, economic policy as being the ultimate answer. They may be drivers, but to me, they remain band-aids on the biggest issue, which is what is the development of a human being and is he or she stuck in the reptilian brain and as you said the amygdala or have they come forward into the mammalian brain which is of course a place of original nurture and nourishment and love and bonding and then even further into the cerebral and the prefrontal cortex which leads directly into the brain of the heart in other words what i'm charting the the i'm charting personal development human development and without that without the integrity that is built step by step as we move from the back brain to the front brain we can legislate ourselves to the stars and we're never going to be able to cover every loophole it's when people themselves become self-governing because we internally become a unified field, maximizing our optimal consciousness and conscience that we're going to actually have a better world and an economy that works for everyone. Well, I like to look at it really in a very holistic and systemic way. And, um, of course, we do need um, human development, personal, spiritual uh, development. But that is necessary but not sufficient. You have to also do the politics and you also have to change the rules and all of those things. I mean, for example, you were talking about greed. Greed. um, if you have um, a country which is run on a source code, a malfunctioning source code like economics, um, then what you do is you incentivize the greed and you reward the greed. And yeah. it's even been shown that um, uh, students that go to business school and learn economics become more selfish and more greedy. So we know that there's feedback loops at every level. And so it's much more of a systemic issue. And we have to pay attention not only to all of the levels from the family and the individual up through the state, the national, the corporate, global corporate sector, all the way up to international agreements. Um, yes. And uh, that, uh, that it's all of those levels uh, that we have to keep in mind all the time. And we have to look at what, um, uh, in any society, um, who is rewarded, um, who is incentivized, and why. And why. 
and for every society it's different. You know, most societies have mixed economies. They're partly driven by the rules of markets or the rules of socialism, as, as uh, depend, like in, in China. Exactly. Uh, you know, they call it socialism in my point, with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> I wholly agree with that. What I'm saying is that at base, if you do not have a well-working human being in a couple and in a family and then in a village and then in a community, then the laws won't work because there's always a workaround. However, if you have a whole being who is integrated and is emotionally mature, that means they will not be looking just to acquire, to fill in an internally perceived gap or vacuum. Right, that, that is, that is I, totally, I totally agree with and you. And then you but get on the other hand, that reflect um, the whole human being. But yeah. if you have those whole human beings and they're in um, a culturally and hostile environment, mm-hmm. um, the, then you end up with uh, people collapse. in forgotten areas where they have to hold two or three jobs, they can't get ahead, um, yes. and the factory closed down, and so on and so forth. Um, and so it becomes very, very difficult, um, however um, well-motivated the human being, um, if you're in a hostile culture. And so that's why, you know, uh, I I was telling you earlier today about, um, you know, talking with my daughter about this. And uh, she uh, helps, uh, she's a a therapist with the VA, and and she helps to, uh, she has a whole bunch of um, clients who are returning veterans who have, uh, you know, PSD, um, PTS, you know, and um, minimal brain damage you know, from uh, explosions. And basically, she's bringing them back through all kinds of wonderful uh, therapies, which we know work, you know, uh, animals, pets, growing gardens, uh, music, um, you know, group therapy, all kinds of things. And then um, as they are restored to uh, emotional health, there are no jobs. Exactly, and so uh, and so she and I have this debate all the time, as I was telling you. <laughs> yes, but it's the holistic. The thing that's why uh, Fritchoff's uh, courses on systems thinking are so important, because um, we we can't get stuck on any one of these levels. Um, it's always an orchestration um, of. Uh, uh, of uh, many, many strategies, and you have to have an overarching paradigm shift or an understanding of the rules you're operating. What, what are the rules Absolutely. of the society? And one of the reasons that all of this was really easy for me, and it is easy for anybody who grows up in one culture and then moves to another culture, Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, the French uh, sociologist Jean Piaget uh, called that de um meaning um, losing your country. And mm-hmm. I grew up in Britain, 
And I always thought, oh, well, moving to the USA, you know, I mean, gee, it's the same language. And, the, and it took yeah. me a long time when I moved here to realize, no, 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 this culture is very, very different. Like the Brits, we're all grown up. We're, we're all taught to be communitarian, as most Europeans mm-hmm. are. Um, it, yeah. It's about the community comes first, um, yes. and then the individual is. And I suddenly realized, oh, my God, in the USA, it's, it's like the, the individual is king, and, yeah. and everything else kind of revolves around the individual. And, yeah. and so that that's a huge uh, cultural difference that took me a long time to figure it out. Sure. Absolutely. And there are differences then again, country to country, where there's more of a, in Asia, there tends to be a group consciousness and what was Very uh, much. You know, earlier times of Japan and China, certainly, oh, Korea. I can you know, remember my Chinese daughter telling me, you know, I have an adopted Chinese daughter because um, I've been going to China since 1986. And mm-hmm. um, she she was saying to me uh, many, many years ago, she said, you know, we don't have a word for individual. And and she said, what, what, I, what I was so taught um, is that if I want to be happy, I have to make my mother and father happy, my brothers and sisters happy, my uncles and aunts happy, my grandparents oh, happy, and then I can be happy. God almighty, what <laughs> a different mindset that is. It's so yes. different. I want to circle around to something, Hazel, which uh something you and I are familiar with that uh, that Fritoff Copper brought up in his wonderful Copper course on systems thinking I referred to and before yeah. we referred to, which is this idea of eco-literacy. And yeah. he is part of an entire international movement which is bringing eco-literacy as a concept and as a training into very, uh, to youth. So I don't know if it's elementary school, but certainly it's junior high and high schools where oh, children and teenagers thing, yes. are learning about a love and honoring and respect of Mother Nature on that level. So it's got an emotional component, a spiritual component, but it also, is, as I understand it, I should say, uh, it also has the biological scientific understanding of who we are inside of as part of nature and how to mm-hmm. respect and honor ecosystems and the interconnectedness of all life forms. Yes, Isn't when you know he started the Center for Eco Literacy many many years ago, yes. um, and, and uh, you know he and I have been buddies for thirty years, you know, yeah. and and so um, tracked each other's work, and so yes. he was a pioneer. Start he started the Center for Eco Literacy in Berkeley in the nineteen, as far as I remember, the nineteen seventies or early nineteen eighties. Oh long. yes, and, that and so ago. that was an entire paradigm and basically they began you know with one school you know yard teaching the children you know how to grow things and and then i mean it grew so that it was a curriculum that they were propagating that curriculum through all of these uh, school systems Mm. and um, so it was magnificent work and he was the first person i knew of in the u.s who was actually doing that Mm. 
That is wonderful. So I just wanted to bring that up for our audience to know that there are these enormous movements happening across the world despite the Trumps and the other dictatorial types in power that are seeking to dismantle the intelligence of the green and renewable energy movement and economy. They are pebbles, my friends. They are but pebbles. And the power of intelligence and good people and intelligent, thoughtful, scientifically minded people are forging ahead entrepreneurially, which is being visionary about creating a better future for all people. And there's a democratic quality and character to what's going on because of our understanding of the six forms of capital. Yes, and what we have to realize... And I that think changes what we have everything. to realize that today is that um, in the, oh, there's a whole of this breaking down all around us, but we have to remember that breakdowns drive breakthroughs, and this is evolutionary. This is the evolutionary path, and that stress, the stress that we're all going through right now, is evolution's tool, and that there is good stress, and and that all species evolve only because of stress when the environment changes and managing it so that drives resilience and, and so what's happening now is that basically uh, the uh, evolutionary uh, processes of human society are speeding up during, because of all of the interactions we've created with social media and satellites and, you know, the Internet and everything else. So the thing is accelerating, and we should expect that a lot of, um, uh, of institutions that we're used to seeing around are going to disappear and a lot of new institutions are going to take their place and that at the same time um, all of this will happen the way biologists understand it which is not a nice smooth straight line of evolutionary change but through jumps and it's called right. punctuated equilibrium in their language. And so we expect, too, that while these organizational jumps are taking, um, you know, where whole political... I mean, look at the sudden, uh, in the United States, suddenly women um, are standing up and saying they're not going to put up with a sexual harassment. And, yes. you know, it's very, very rapid. Heads are falling, all of that kind of thing. Very, very fast. And so it, the other jump that's happening is the jump in human consciousness. And that's yes. going to happen uh, at a faster pace because everything else is happening at a faster pace because of all of the technologies of interaction that we've created. Well, that refers to really indirectly to another wonderful Brit which, whose name is Rupert Sheldrake and the work he's done around morphogenetic fields and the hundredth monkey syndrome, which, of course, as the consciousness among a few advances, well, it becomes like a, a healthy contagion 
a wonderful infection. And it's like mm-hmm. love as an infection. You know, everybody's experiencing it, you know. It's well, that kind of phenomenon that is taking grip. Much more, you know, and the, the, um, we're so in touch with each other now. And, yes. of course, it's very stressful in a lot of ways. And uh, there's good and bad news about it. But uh, we can't ignore each other anymore. And if, uh, this is now uh, what's happening with corporations. They talk all the time now about reputation risk. If you're yeah. a corporation and you pollute the environment or you're a bad actor in some way, yeah. somebody somewhere is going to start up a website that says XY Corporation uh, sucks. <laughs> Exactly. Someone is watching you. Someone is watching. And if one person is watching, a million will be watching, you know. Yes, exactly. It's really true. It's really true. Well, we've come to, before we finish, however, because, you know, let's look at it. What we're dealing with in terms of building an economy, which is to build, let's think locally again, because we know, and a lot of, a lot of the work, by the way, of another uh, mutual colleague of ours, David Corton, who I interviewed yes. back in the 90s, um, mm-hmm. you know, has been talking so much about for so long of building local economies, decentralizing, and in that way we start to become more sovereign over our own lives, our families' lives, and our economic lives. So, you know, with this happening, our control over food, our control over water, our control over healthy air and soil, which we know has been depleted since the 1930s. The USDA came out with that in the United States way back in 1933. So in order to regain our own resiliency and our own robustness on all levels, Hazel, um, we really think about building a lot of local economies. Like earlier, you were speaking about local currencies as part of that picture. So. Right. A part of that is adapting to the current situation of water on the planet, of fresh water versus salt water. And you have been involved in and have spoken with me at some length about halophytes. Can you speak to yes. our audience about this? I think it's a very yes, important um, in my piece first of the book. picture. Yeah, in my first book, Creating Alternative Futures, which was uh, published in 1978, and E.F. Schumacher, who wrote Small is Beautiful, did the forward Mm -hmm. to it. And back then, um, I was talking all about this, the need to decentralize, you know, because uh, that would be the only way that we could restore this um, autonomy that we needed to express our own values in spite of the fact that the, the economy was rewarding all the wrong things. And so... Uh, in my travels writing that book, um, I learned about the 10,000 varieties of plants on this planet that prefer salt water. And uh, I thought, well, my gosh, you know, the, the, most of the water on this planet, actually 97% of it, is salt water. And so there's all of these plants which are being hybridized and have been used all over the world for centuries in China and India and many, many places. And 
So here we are, we're overusing the 3% of fresh water, and we're overusing the plants that only grow in fresh water, which is our entire food supply now. And we have been working the soil um, and depleting it and using this 3% of water, and we've come to the end of the line, you know, because the population of the world is still growing, and they're saying, oh my God, we need to produce twice as much food from the same acreage as we have in the past. How are we going to do that? Oh my gosh, we have to have GMO foods and all these stupid things. And so... I was saying back in that book in 1978, well, hey, we've got these underutilized resources. We've got 10,000 varieties of plants which can be hybridized for for, uh, food like quinoa. Uh, which is a, a grain, yeah. um, which is now very popular. That's a salt-loving plant, and many, many others. And we have the free photons from the sun. We have all of 40% of the land is not used for agriculture. It's desert or scrubland. So we've got all that land that we can use to grow these salt water plants and use the free photons from the sun. And I thought, well, why? what is going on here? You know, why is there this theory-induced blindness, you know, where there's only one way of doing things? And now, finally, after after 30 years, um, I think that halophyte agriculture, halophyte means salt-loving plants, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is coming to the fore because it's the only way to go now is to use that unused um, scrubland to use these 10,000 varieties of plants and uh, to use the seawater to irrigate them. And so uh, basically the other thing that's really interesting is that while the, um, the plants that we're using for our food right now are nutritionally depleted because our soils are so depleted of minerals and so you know basically we're eating junk food even if it's beautiful organically grown vegetables it's they're still depleted and the uh, whereas unless the, the soil uh, has been replenished that is yes and so whereas the salt loving plants um, take up the saline water which has the mineral uh, profile exactly what humans need because we all evolved out of the sea. Yes. And so um, that we have this this new form of uh, using plants um, which are mineral rich and exactly what we need. So interesting. I love that you were onto this 30 plus years ago and you know, it's just you are. I, I, I want to say Hazel Henderson for president is what I want to say. Oh, come on, <laughs> I would hate that. Well, I love you too much. It's an impossible job, as, as as Donald Trump is finding out. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And there's also the carbon sequestration aspect of the house. Yes. Oh, correct? yes, absolutely. Speak about and that. And that's why it's going to come to the fore. 
Because mm-hmm. not only now are we going to have to shift, uh, as we are doing, to renewable uh, solar age technologies to keep carbon out of the air, but we are also going to have to directly remove it uh, uh, through sequestration. And the very best new way of sequestering a carbon and capturing it is um, halophyte agriculture, because it's not going to need to use use any of the the agricultural land or the precious fresh water that we need for our current food so that we can make this transition. Interesting. So it has the ability to sequester, um, not in itself, but because it's not a, it's not utilizing the same resources. It's as not utilizing is. the same resources, and also that a lot of these plants actually capture carbon um, more efficiently more than efficiently. some of the That's plants that we use. Yeah. yeah. As with the uh, the special lawn that I told you about, which is oh, sequestering yes. hazel at six to eight times the rate of a regular lawn. I and, laughed to myself when and I And you are going out. to send me some samples I that am. I'm going to plant <laughs> in my backyard. <laughs> Definitely will. And so that we can let the world know about it, where there are lawns and grasses growing, because this becomes, you know, it's actually an edible grass as well. I mean, it it can go full, you know, just like, you know, not spirulina exactly, but um, wheatgrass and things of that sort. It has May, a Maybe it's a halophyte. It may be, Who and knows? that is something I told you I would look into for us. Okay. Or for the world, for sure. Well, you know, Hazel, it is always such a pleasure to have you on A Better World. You are truly one of our favorite guests here, and the work you're doing with Ethical Markets and the Green Score Transition Scoreboard and Ethic Mark Awards of honoring those advertisers and advertisements that are meaningful and humane and supporting a new eco-friendly future is uh, this is work that is um, ground changing. And I just well, thank, thank you. you. And I hope people, may I mention our website again? Oh, please do. Ethicalmarkets.com. And come and see us. Thank you again, Hazel Anderson. Thank you. Sure. Take care, Miss. Bye-bye. Surely. Bye-bye now. Hazel Henderson, futurist, economist. I mean, when I say futurist, I mean, did it not become abundantly clear? Here she was speaking about halophyte agriculture in the 1970s. Now, you know, I was but a young lad at the time. But, you know, who else was speaking about this? Schumacher, who is, you know, credited with virtually founding the environmental movement in the United States. Well, you know, it goes back actually to uh, Rachel Carson and a few other ecologists and conservationists back at the turn of the 20th century, quite honestly. But nonetheless, these were a handful of people that were seeking to bring an education and an awareness about our environment and about the ecosystem and about Mother Nature to us. We Anglos, who for some reason lost the thread of our connection to nature and then went about 
destroying it in no uncertain terms that's what we have done i for myself i remember a moment when i realized that society was not a creative society but the economy was based on destruction and that was a sad day in my life when I realized that in order to make money, and this is something Hazel and I spoke of earlier on A Better World TV, and if you tune in there, you will hear this point made as well, that to make money, you must essentially destroy. And that shows up through the idea of digging and drilling and mineral resource access, as well as the human body of killing and surgically removing and radiating and chemicalizing things such as cancer when we know there are way more bio-friendly and eco-friendly ways of going about having much greater health and much greater wealth that so much of what we've been talking about here today so I want to just thank all of you for tuning in again and spread the word to your friends. Take the link and forward it to your friends and family and colleagues and uh, heads of state for that matter and let them know about the true power of sustainable and systems thinking, of course, and how to sort of grow a green economy, a solarized economy, as Hazel likes to put it, which is a phrase that I just adore, and make a difference in the world. We can have a low carbon impact, and even though climate change looms ahead, even at this late moment, as Paul Hawken in his latest book, Drawdown, and others really make the case that if we start yesterday, no, I'm kidding, if we really take this seriously now, I mean all of us, we really can make the difference that we need to slow down and retain a higher level of oxygen in the air and stop the felling of trees in the Amazon and the Congo, the lungs of our earth, and that means our lungs, and really turn this game around toward the sun, as Hazel likes to say, a solarized and the solar age economy. So thanks again for joining. Please drop me an email at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net. Get on our website and uh, also get onto our you know weekly newsletter. It's free, it's available for you, and it also lets you know the shows we'll be having on uh, the television show in New York City, as well as receive my blogs. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.